Hey guys, my name is Amanda, and this is the first episode of We Can't Say That in Church, which is a brand new podcast that we are kicking off. And we are a young adults church based out of Hope City Church in Edmonton, Alberta. You can check out the description for more details. But our goal for this podcast is to bring in different people from the community and show that churches can and should talk about topics that might be considered more taboo by the general Christian crowd or churches, uh, but it's healthy to actually have these kinds of conversations. So today, our guest speaker is Dr. Kath. Hi, Hi. Dr. <laughs> Hello, welcome. Um, tell you. us, Kate, about yourself, your work, your job, just your life. Introduce yourself to us. Okay. My favorite part of my job is teaching at Vanguard College. I am the program director of the Pastoral Care and Counseling Program, and I also run the Academic Success Center that okay. helps students that have disabilities of different kinds. So, and then I carry a small counseling practice on the side. Wow, so very light load. Yeah, very light. Yeah. yeah. So, how did you kind of how did you come to be um, a psychologist? Um, totally unintentionally, mm-hmm. actually. Um, just as I lived my life, my adult life, it was just one step after the other. I didn't even know what a psychologist was when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And so what I found when I was pastoring for my early career and later too, um, but I found that people will come to me with all kinds of things from bipolar disorder to anxiety to abuses of different kinds. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I needed more training to be able to deal with what was coming my way. And so I got a master's degree and then I carried on. And then I found out I love teaching. And so I was looking at a specific university and they said, well, you better get a PhD then. So I said, okay, I will. So I did. And it was just like one step after the other. Mm-hmm. Um, from that point on, the being becoming a registered psychologist was kind of the next natural step okay so yeah that was never the goal right yeah okay that's very cool mm-hmm. so we had you already here on Sunday night at the project yeah and you answered some questions for us there but we wanted to have yeah further conversation and we asked young adults um here at the project to submit some questions for you so we're just going to jump in um and we'll we'll get into it there's no really like theme to any of these Um, but we'll just uh, start with the first one. So first question submitted was, this was a popular one. A lot of people actually asked Mm -hmm. this question. That was, how can you support someone in your life who is struggling with trauma or their own mental health? Okay. The first thing I would say about that is that you, the friends and family, are the most important people Mm -hmm. in their life. Um, When I was doing my trauma training, one of the instructors said, In the end, it is not so much about whether you have a good or a bad therapist, but it is about the support network that sits Mm -hmm. underneath you that is going to be the most helpful in healing. So I think knowing just that your presence is really important, it's not going to be in your words, it's not going to be in saying or doing the right things, it's just going to be being there and loving them, Um, sometimes maybe helping them find a support group Mm -hmm. that is kind of... if. They want to. Go, I happen to know that Hope City has some of those kind of support groups. Um, if it's dealing with grief or whatever, that can help them get some information. Right. But just as the person that loves them, love them. Okay. That's the most important thing. So when it comes to, because um, it can be hard to feel like you can take on a lot of that yourself when someone else is going through something difficult. Is there, what is the, the 
I guess, having boundaries for yourself, for them? Because you want to love them, but what does that look like to um, take care of yourself in the middle of that as well? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I think, and this is going to sound almost silly, but when we get into these situations, I think we go here. Um, we have to remember that we are not them and they are not me. Hmm. And so though they struggle, I don't have to struggle. I just come alongside and share. Compassion is kind of like a messmate. I just, I sit in those hard things with them. But it doesn't mean that I have to pull them out. It doesn't mean that I have to fix it. In fact, it is better not to fix it. Just come alongside compassionately and don't do it all the time. And so have those times where you get kind of separate and you have your own ways that you take care of yourself, like, excuse me, um, your own meditation practices or making sure you stay in shape or taking your time away with people that give you life. And that person you care about may be one of the people that give you life, mm-hmm. but you might need some variety in your life right. from that too. Okay, mm-hmm. that's good. I like that term, a messmate. That mm-hmm. creates a good visual. I like yeah. that. Yeah, that comes from Alan Wolfelt. That's not my own. No, that's good. I like that. Mm. Okay, let's jump into the next question. So how do you handle family members who have caused hurt or trauma in your life? That's a really hard one just to straight up answer because it really depends on the situation. Um, And different people need to do different things. Mm. And I think, um, so first of all, it's important for the person to be working with somebody that can help them sort through what they need to do. Some people need to... um, Well, everybody needs to consider the consequences of what will come from any action that they take. Um, And it's really important for that person to decide for themselves. There's a lot of people around us who have opinions, Mm -hmm. but they're not going to live with the consequences. So then the question is, what would the consequences be? And am I willing to live with that consequence? So some people may say, it is important to me to keep these relationships in place. So I'm going to find another way to find personal resolution in this. And other people may say, I have to confront that hurtful person and see if you can find relational resolution. The consequence of that is you may not. And are you willing to pay that price? So it's really um, counting the cost, making your decision what you need Mm -hmm. to do. There's no textbook answer, I don't think, Mm -hmm. for that one. No, that's a good point. Is yeah, thinking because it's very easy to offer solutions to someone else, but like you said, they're the ones who have to deal with the consequences of yes. it. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Hmm, okay, that is very challenging, especially like yeah, like when you don't know the exact situation. But mm-hmm. hmm, that's a good approach. Okay, next one. This is in a different direction. This question. Uh, the question we got was, how do you get out of the rut that forms after high school? But even, even if we generalize it, how do you pull yourself out of a rut? Yeah. I think the important thing is that you don't climb a mountain in one step hmm. or even necessarily in one day. So if you're finding yourself in a rut, usually it, you're kind of, you might keep trying and eventually sort of feel like you're kind of laying down and giving up. And my question for the person who's struggling to get out of a rut, feeling like they can't is, what can you do? You climb a mountain one step at a time. 
So it can be a small step. You will climb the mountain even if you do small steps, but chances are you start with a small step and another and another, and eventually your steps probably will get a little bit bigger. And if they don't, it doesn't matter because you're still getting out of the rut. Mm. So I just say one step at a time, what can you do Mm -hmm. today? And then tomorrow we can consider that again. Is it the same thing or can you do something different or something more? One step at a time, one day at a time. That's a great challenge. I Mm. love that. That's a great visual. Whenever you have visuals to help you kind of think outside of this question especially, that's really good. Mm -hmm. Okay. um, Oh, this next one is, is a big one. I've been told my bipolar disorder won't go away because I don't pray enough. Mm. What do you think? That's a that's a hard oh. one. Oh, that makes me sad. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I think that we have to remember that with some of these, there's chemical things that go on mm. in our brain. And some of us are born with a, I will call it a chemical predisposition. It's probably not accurate to say chemical, but there is a predisposition to certain kind of disorders. So if you see somebody with depression, you often, really often see depression in their family mind. If you see someone with bipolar disorder, you often see that in their family line as well. And so um, certainly pray. You can ask God for anything. Um, But... I would say probably more importantly is work with your doctor. Um, Do what you need to to take care of yourself. Those basic self-care skills like getting exercise and all that practical kind of stuff still applies to this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think just recognizing that for some people, this is actually a biological thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not going to help you to beat yourself up. Mm -hmm. So learn to work with it take care of yourself and you can get leveled out mm-hmm. yeah. do you find that's still a big conversation in the church where um to try and like separate i guess like the science of it from like for bipolar from like the the spiritual faith aspect i think we kind of separate them which is dangerous and just maybe where this this question came from do you find mm-hmm. that still pretty like prevalent in churches or are we more open-minded i guess to be really honest with you, I'm probably too intimidating to argue with on that one. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, people wouldn't argue with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably. Um, so I don't hear much of that. I I did for a while when I first started teaching, mm-hmm. but I don't hear it as much. Okay. Because for me, those two things are very connected, the mm-hmm. spiritual and the mental health, like that yeah, kind of thing. very much so, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. No, that's hopefully that's encouraging that, that, that this happens less. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Um, All right. So this next one. This next one says, why do you think porn addictions have become so prevalent in society? So this question, it did specify within the last two years. And I Mm -hmm. think quarantine has played a huge role in that. But um, yeah, why porn addictions specifically, I guess, have they been so prevalent? The first word that leaps to my mind is loneliness. Mm, yeah. So when you when you look at porn, there are there are hormones and chemicals that are released, like dopamine and and um, oxytocin is like the hugging hormone. Mm. So there's that um, there's that sense of of filling in for loneliness. The problem with it is when you're finished with porn, you realize that you are alone, and that was not real and and it can actually add to the 
the loneliness. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm kind of going off the question there. I think loneliness, I think it's so available. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when someone's not even looking, boom, there it just appears in front of you. So I think there's a few things that happening. So to a follow-up question to that, um, this was submitted a couple times actually as well, is how can someone walk through their own addiction, whether it is a porn addiction or something else, how do you navigate that, your own personal addiction? One of the questions that we ask in addictions is, um, what are the good things about your addiction? Hmm. Which sounds really counterintuitive, like, right. oh my goodness, you've got to <laughs> steer away from it. Yeah. But I... I like to lean into it and say, how does it help you? Because if I can understand how it helps somebody, what it kind of fills in for, then we know coping mechanisms that we can start to um, put into our life Hmm. that meet those needs. So we're actually addressing what may feel like the deficit that that addiction is trying to fill. Hmm. So I think... Leaning in and understanding is really huge. And, I mean, accountability, having somebody that you can talk to, um, someone that you can go to when you're feeling like, I'm so tempted, I can't stay away from it, all that. I'm I'm talking about connection, really, right? Mm -hmm. So we're back to that community network, that support network, Mm -hmm. people around you. Yeah. That's a really proactive way of looking at it. Because I think a lot of times people try and shame their way into a solution, mm. which rarely works. But then to look at it, how does it help you? Yeah. That's really, I think, would be enlightening for to look at to look at that in a very different way. Yeah, yeah. that's a great approach. Yeah. I would also add, we also want to ask about the less good things. Yes. And yeah. interesting, and I think this is important to know, is... The longer a person is in an addiction, the more I hear them say back to me about good things, there's nothing good about it at all. Sometimes mm-hmm. people will say it just helps me to feel normal or just yeah. simply there's nothing good about it anymore. Right. And so that's kind of the end run of this. And I think mm. that that's an important thing to recognize out of the gate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That is very interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's see. Next one we have... How do you connect with Jesus when you struggle to connect due to past hurt or trauma? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind there is who is the person that is a picture of Jesus that's Mm. very um, approachable? Is it that person that speaks on a Sunday night? Or, or, um, yeah, who represents Jesus in a palatable way? And I would say... Ask them some questions and start to, this might might sound kind of funny, but kind of back into your relationship with Jesus. Hmm. And as you get to know more and more about him and you find out that he actually loves you, he's compassionate about you, and he, he actually is a healer, and you start finding out those things, then maybe you can gain the courage to turn around and start to get to know him a little bit. Hmm. So you want to do some things that are going to, kind of make him feel safer right yeah okay yeah no it does yeah no that's great I like that that's great okay this next one is uh okay a bit of a longer one but Mm -hmm. what are some ways to approach or address a victim mindset whether that's in yourself or or someone else if you get caught up in that victim mentality how do you pull yourself out how do you address that things like that yeah okay (laughs) <laughs> I could talk for probably a whole hour on this okay. one, so I'm going to try to keep it okay. not too long. Yeah. Um, 
But I think first to recognize that there there is actually a triad of roles that fit together with this victim mentality. And I think that's really important to recognize. So a victim needs a rescuer. And the rescuer and victim need a persecutor to kind of balance them out. This is a whole theory um, by Cartman, a guy named Cartman with a K. And uh, so what happens is you've got the victim who's Nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm going to go eat worms in the garden. And then you've got the, the rescuer that comes in and says, you poor thing, I'm going to pull you out of mm-hmm. your sadness. But the problem is that you have to keep pulling them out and pulling them out and pulling them out. And then the persecutor comes in, and we can play all of those roles at the same time in mm-hmm. any combination of, and kind of tries to set things straight. But you end up with this, com- this trio um, when we're under stress. Those are stress roles. Okay. So... What you want to do is the victim needs to become the implementer who says, I am going to pull, I'm going to take this bull by the horns and I'm going to choose a different path for myself and I am going to work out of my resiliencies and the resources I have and I'm going to make different choices. I'm not going to wait for a rescuer to come and rescue me. I'm not going to... Uh, continue in victimization thinking because there's a persecutor around I'm going to implement the solutions in my own life and those are the choices I'm going to make recognizing that I have strength strengths that are unique to me and I'm going to put those to work Hmm. yeah okay own your stuff and move forward yeah yeah what are ways to help? I think what I've noticed too is it's a hard it's hard for people to identify that in themselves if they're stuck in that mm. victim mentality. Are there ways to kind of or questions to ask yourself like Am I stuck in this mindset mm. um, of yeah feeling like a victim and I don't realize it? Or does that make sense? Okay, so are you asking me what can I do to take myself? Well, if I yeah, I guess how can people I guess self identify that they are. Kind of stuck in that mindset. It's hard to self-identify if you're stuck in the mindset. That's true. Usually, yeah. it's going to take another person hmm. who who might reflect back, saying, um, "It sounds like you keep getting victimized." Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so I'm I'm kind of flipping it around. So you can bring me back to mm-hmm. your original question mm-hmm. if you want to. But questions like, "What can you do?" Mm-hmm. takes us out of the victim mindset. Um, if somebody is telling me that they struggled to get down to work, they were driving down to work and they struggled the whole way because they were panicking, I would be saying to them, wow, that's quite the resilience that you struggled all the way and you still got all the way to work. Like there's always that resilience to find when you're looking for it. And that way you can help a person build their own strategies. Mm. So is it always important to say you're being a victim i don't know that it is sometimes i think you can just help them think differently right ask yeah. some questions yeah no that's good no i love that that's mm-hmm. great okay there's one last question well actually we already talked about this on sunday but i want i'm hoping you can repeat it because it was really good so on sunday we'd asked you if there was one piece of advice that you'd want to give or leave with young adults and i loved your answer you talked about four pillars and then you told a story of a boat. So hopefully yeah. what I mean. But yeah, what would that piece of advice be? Yeah. Okay. So the four pillars are, number one, exercise. Um, you keep your body working for you and bo- your body will work for you. Mm-hmm. So, and 
exercise does so many things. It helps us cognitive, emotionally, sleep-wise. There's just like a bunch of things that work better. So exercise, eating well, not a nutritionist. So I can't say a lot about that, but I just know that your body needs the right kind of fuel and enough fuel Mm -hmm. to be able to support your emotional needs and all your physical needs, all that kind of stuff. Um, Sleep. Sleep is critical. You need to get enough sleep. Stop with the all-nighters. Your body needs sleep to be able to remember, to be able to heal, all that kind of stuff. And the fourth is is, um, nurturing your spiritual life meditation, prayer, that kind of thing. Mm. And that's where the story comes in. And the story is from a visit to Hawaii that we had where we were on a catamaran. And they told us at the beginning of the ride that if we wanted to experience the waves fully, we ride at the front of the boat. That would be where to just feel it all, which is, of course, where we rode because we're roller coaster fanatics and <laughs> love that kind of thing. And so it was really wavy and it was really fun. Um, but if you wanted a little bit smoother ride, go to the back of the boats. So the waves would be less powerful. But if you really wanted a smooth ride, go to the belly of the boat. And so um, we were having a lot of fun and I hadn't really noticed anything around me because we were just slamming on the waves and it was just a really fun time but they noticed a humpback whale so we stopped to look at them and um so we're all looking and thinking that was really cool and taking pictures and then the captain said we're gonna go um we're gonna take off again so if you want to go back down it was like watching ants run back down Mm -hmm. to the belly of the boat because here's the thing in the belly of the boat it was calm out in the front it was waves and craziness which um, some of us are more set up for that than others but when they get down to the belly of the boat they'd be going through the same water they'd be going through the same waves but the experience was completely different Mm -hmm. and for me that is such a picture of our need to get to that quiet place where we're taking care of our spirit Mm -hmm. and we're getting down there and we're just spending time just being quiet hearing what God has to say talking to him, reading scripture, or just being still and knowing that he is God in the belly of the boat. Same waves, same ocean, Mm -hmm. same stuff, Mm -hmm. but a whole different kind of ride. Mm -hmm. And even though I love the waves, I still need those times where I get down in the belly of the boat and I can have my spirit come to rest so that I'm ready to go back out and Mm -hmm. experience the stuff because that's what I'm called to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so good. I love that visual. That's great. Because, yeah, it gives three different perspectives, which oh, that's mm-hmm. great. Okay, thank you mm-hmm. for sharing. Oh, yeah. um, that's all the questions that we had. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be sharing this in our podcast. But, yeah, thank you for joining us. And, it was my um, pleasure. Yeah, thanks for being here. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about the project and who we are, check out theprojectyeg.com.